Good morning to you. I hope you're well today. Um, a, few, a, few, a few quick things before we jump in. First, Serve Week is this week, and for those who may not be aware, this is where we take a break from our normal uh, midweek city group gatherings and seek to serve our community in tangible ways. Uh, we try to do this at least four times a year, uh, more as a springboard for greater involvement into our community. Uh, you know, here at New City, we seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus for our community uh, and to our community and serving our community in simple ways. You know, Serve Week is not the finish line uh, or the end goal for, for serving our community. It's the starting line. Uh, the hope is that uh, it would be a way to, eat, to get us each plugged into serving outside of our church in order to uh, display the gospel in tangible ways to our community uh, with the hopes of then declaring the gospel. And so that's scheduled for this week. Uh, if you're not in a group and you want to get involved in serving with us, uh, just let us know and we can, we, can, uh, we can help you with that. And then next... We're officially in week seven uh, in our trek through the book of Philippians. Uh, and as a friendly reminder, uh, we are seven weeks out from our very first New City Church Christmas service. Uh, we've already, yeah, praise God, I'm excited about it. Uh, it's, we've already started planning for this. You know, it's going to be a great opportunity to invite your friends and your family and your coworkers uh, to come and jo join us. You know, it's going to be a little different uh, than a typical Sunday service with more music and a little bit more decorations. Uh, uh, to, it's going to be a great celebration for us. So that said, after today, we've got three weeks left in Philippians, uh, and then we're going to start a three-part mini-series uh, that will take us to Christmas. Uh, we're going to take three weeks and look at the big overarching story of the Bible. Uh, and so if you're wondering uh, what book we're going to be in, well, we're going to be in the Bible, uh, the whole thing. I think it's really helpful from time to time to kind of zoom out uh, and look at God's grand narrative of Scripture. Uh, just look at the whole story of the Bible. So we're going to take three weeks to get, look at the three parts of the story. We're going to see the need for Christmas. We're going to see the hope for Christmas. And then we're going to see the joy of Christmas. And that begins in December. So that being said, today we're going to continue in Philippians 3. And we're going to dive right into chapter 3. Uh, last week we saw the joy of faithful sending from the end of Philippians 2. Uh, seeing Paul send his two faithful brothers Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, just as models for us, models to follow. And today it seems as if Paul is starting to close out his letter, saying in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he says, Finally, my brothers, as if he's about to end this letter, about to land the plane. But as we see, and if we look ahead, uh, we know he's only halfway through. Uh, it seems like a bad preacher trick here, uh, but in fairness to Paul, in post-classical Greek, uh, this was used as more of a transitional statement uh, that maybe should be translated, translated as, so then, rejoice, or moreover, rejoice. And then Paul goes on to say, as uh, he repeats this command to rejoice by saying, uh, to write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And so to transition from our example of Timothy and Epaphroditus from last week, uh, what, and then to our next section to today, he says, rejoice. This is good for you. This is also good for me. Rejoice. No matter what's going on around you, uh, rejoice in the Lord. This is medicine and it's strength for your soul. Rejoice and give thanks today. Because then uh, he goes on to point out a few troubles they're facing. Uh, and then he makes a stark contrast. He gives a warning. And what we're going to see here in our passage uh, is a comparing and a contrasting. You know, I don't know if you've had, any, had to make any decisions here recently. I can think of maybe a few we've had to make, we've each had to make. 
Uh, but maybe nothing quite like trying to decide when and if a family moves to a minivan, okay? This is a big decision. This is a big step. We've had a few hard decisions to make in our life, uh, but this was one that was, at, uh, this was really hard. It was at the top of the list. You know, it's not, it's not really a problem when you have two kids, but as soon as you have three kids and all three kids are in car seats, it creates quite the dilemma, okay? It's quite the problem. And so, uh, like many other families, we're forced to make a tough decision. And so, uh, just like every major decision, what do we do? Uh, we have a pros list and a cons list, drawing a line down the middle of the page. Uh, pros on one side and cons on the other. And maybe uh, we can say pluses and minuses or gains and losses. Uh, and so, in the gains column of the minivan, the first thing we write down is, well, uh, they tend to be less costly than the larger third row SUV competition. And then secondly, in the gains column, they have bucket seats. Uh, and well, my friends, today we can know that three car seats, uh, those third row seats are not easy to get to uh, when a car seat is in the way. It's difficult. It's a real dilemma. And then lastly, you're essentially driving a spaceship. Uh, there is tons of room. They are very spacious. You know, I think we can all agree that as soon as you step into a, a minivan, it's an immediate party. That's just what happens. Uh, and not to mention, you've got those automatic doors. They open with the push of a button. And with three kids, uh, strollers, car seats, a uh, handful of groceries, baby carriers, that button, let me tell you, that is the real deal. That button, when the doors just fly open, unbelievable. It will change your life. And then on the other side of the paper, in the loss column, the only thing you have to write down is minivan. That's it. Minivan. It's a minivan, enough said. Uh, and so this was a tough decision for us. It was grueling. And well, uh, we have been on team minivan for about five years now. Uh, it was the button that made the decision for us. That was, that was the deciding factor for us. The button uh, is, is the real deal. And so uh, this is similar to what we have on our hands today. Uh, Paul is painting a contrasting picture for us. He's drawing a line down the middle of a piece of paper, and on one side he writes loss, and on the other side he writes gain. And so that said, to structure our time, we're going to split our time by seeing, number one, Paul's loss, and number two, Paul's gain. Normally I would give you our main idea up front, uh, but not today. Today's going to be a little different. Uh, today I want us to wrestle with the weight of this decision. For those who may not be aware of Paul and who he is, uh, he's the guy who's writing this letter. Uh, he's writing from a jail cell to the Philippian church. Paul has been through quite a bit. He's been through a lot. But he's writing this letter as a means to encourage this group of people, to encourage the Philippi church. Uh, and so that said, before we get into our gains and losses columns, I want us to look at the second verse uh, to wrap our head around this so we can understand and see how it affects the rest of our passage. Look what Paul says in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. As I've said, Paul is starting to set up a contrast between gains and losses. And before we get there, in verse 1, again, he reminded us to rejoice, to remember it's good for us to rejoice. rejoice. And then right after that, he gives us this three-part warning. And it's a warning, it's three parts to look out. There's three phrases here. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what's interesting uh, that commentators point out here is that he's not pointing to three different groups uh, or just generically saying, be on the lookout. No, he's pointing to a specific group of people called the Judaizers. And what's interesting about this verse in the original language was it had a bit of a, an alliter alliteration. And so uh, when it was said, there was emphasis added. Uh, this was like good old-fashioned smack talk. 
That's what, that was, that's what was going on here. Because with this, uh, was a bit of ironic sarcasm. Because these three phrases, they were often used uh, by the Judaizers. And so he's tur- Paul is turning what they often said, and he's turning it around on them, uh, back on them. And when, he, and when he says, look out for the dogs, you know, this was commonly said by the Judaizers. They often said it. Uh, to those, they often said this to those who are not keeping the dietary laws. And this language uh, was often said for those who were not of the Jewish heritage. It was a derogatory term. It was a mean statement. It was derogatory because during this time, there was no such thing as a sweet puppy dog. They just, that just that, that didn't make sense. Puppies and sweetness, they didn't go together. Okay? Uh, dogs were consider, considered nasty animals. And then Paul says right after that, continuing to press in, he says, look out for the evildoers. Uh, He's calling them evil because ironically, they paid so much attention to upholding the law, they missed the one who fulfilled the law. They completely missed the good news of Jesus because of their quest for the law, which in turn made them evil workers because they promoted the law and did not promote Christ. Uh, The law was and is important, but it's an extreme burden without Jesus. It's a massive burden without the gospel of Jesus. And then thirdly, the third uh, and final punch here, Paul says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what's interesting here is that in the original language, this would have sounded much like the word circumcision. Uh, And so these Judaizers, in essence, were commonly known to use their uh, religious resume, what they've done, their accomplishments, and their traditions they upheld for confidence. And I want you to hold on to that idea of a, of a religious resume because we're going to use that quite a bit today. And, and I think we get this because when we go to college or when we, ha- when we get, go to get, uh, get a job or uh, go to work, we're trying to build a resume for work to see what you've done, to see if what you've accomplished uh, is good enough to get you accepted into the, go- into the job, to see if your resume is good enough. Well, this, this, happens, uh, this happened in religious circles too. This idea of building a religious resume based off of what we do in order to be accepted by God. And so these Judaizers, they had great confidence in themselves. They had a great religious resume. They thought they were the real deal because they upheld the law, which is why Paul says what he says next. He's showing this stark contrast of their false gospel with the true gospel. And so that said, look at verse 3 with how Paul compares the Judaizers to himself and the Philippian church. Uh, Paul says in verse 3, in contrast, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ uh, Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul writes verse 3 in contrast to verse 2. In essence, he's saying the Judaizers emphasize circumcising their flesh, but we uh, emphasize circumcising our hearts. And that's done by God's Spirit. The Judaizers emphasized what they did, their rituals, and their religious resume, how they upheld the law. And Paul says, no, it's not about what we do on the outside. It's all about what we believe on the inside. The Judaizers, they emphasized obeying rules, what was on the outside appearance, what they've physically done. And Paul says, no, no, watch out for these people. It looks like Christianity, but it's not Christianity. It's not. True Christians are those who have been given new hearts, who have been made new, not by what they've done, not by their religious resume, no, rather by what Jesus has done, by Jesus going to the cross. Their resume, our resume for everyone here today, uh, is not good enough. Uh, They needed, and we here today need Jesus' resume. That is the only way we're good enough for God. We need to submit 
Jesus' resume to God. We need to pass Jesus' resume on our behalf to God. And the only way that happens uh, is, is, is by belief. That's the only way, because uh, that's the only way we can perfectly uphold God's standard, God's law, and it's by giving God Jesus' resume. And what's interesting here is that Paul knows he has a great religious resume, maybe even one of the best, but he knew it would not work. Look what it says starting in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists uh, off his impressive resume. Uh, and look what he says starting in verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. So I'm going to stop right there in the middle of verse 7. Because as we see, everything we just read is Paul's resume. But yet he says at the beginning of verse 7, he counted it all as a loss. Paul, in essence, uh, he puts his entire religious resume in the loss column, which leads us to number one, Paul's loss. You know, something that may be helpful as we look at Paul's religious resume here is that he had both inherited favor and he also had earned favor. If you received, if you received Paul's religious resume back in the day, you would give him an interview based off of his name alone. The first few points here are, are the things that, that Paul just inherited uh, if you were in politics, it would be like getting a resume from a family member uh, of maybe the Bushes or the Clintons or the Kennedys or the Obamas or in sports. We see this all the time. Uh, we've seen it with uh, Bronny James. The kid, the, this guy has been on the recruiting watch list since he was about 12 years old. And why? Well, because LeBron James is his dad. Okay, That's what Paul has going for him on his religious resume. But yet he counts it in the loss column. And so uh, we're going to go back through Paul's resume, and as we do, there's seven things on this resume that he counts as loss. And for the accountants out there, this is Paul's balance sheet. Like this, uh, these are the things that show up in red. They're, these are the negatives. So beginning with his inherited privileges, in verse 5, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day, uh, which basically means his family, they followed all the rules uh, to the exact law of the Abrahamic covenant uh, for his circumcision. And not only that, but it shows that Paul was an insider from birth. He wasn't a later in life convert. No, he was an original eighth day convert or eighth dayer that was, was born into this. And then he says he was of the people of Israel, which means he wasn't, in, he was, he wasn't just an insider from birth, but he was a true blooded insider. His parents were also insiders, and he was an original insider. So he was like an insider of the insiders. And then he says he was of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, which takes his insidership, if that's even a word, to step further. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that remained faithful to Judah in the house of David after the death of Solomon. And so being from this tribe, this was a unique privilege. And Paul was from this tribe. In fact, his original name, Saul, uh, he, he, he was Saul and then later became Paul. Uh, his original name, Saul, shows, that, uh, shows this, like, likely being named after King Saul, uh, making him a top-tier insider of the insiders. Being in his family alone, it made him elite uh, in his religious heritage. And then uh, the last inherited privilege, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews which means he spoke not only Greek, but he also uh, both uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, meaning he was uh, very well educated and he was privileged in his education. He knew both Greek culture and Hebrew culture. You know, just say all these four another way. 
His family followed all of the right rituals. He came uh, from a privileged ethnicity. He, w- he had a privileged rank and grew up in all the right traditions. Paul had a really big head start coming from his family, and he knew it. His resume by his family alone would get him in any, in, into any interview he ever wanted. And then he goes on uh, in his personal accomplishments to say at the very end of verse 5, he says, As to the law of Pharisee, meaning he wasn't just well-educated, but he actually knew the law. He did everything possible to keep and obey the law. You know, we often talk about Pharisees in a negative light uh, because Jesus spoke, about, spoke against them this way. Uh, but before Jesus came onto the scene to denounce their religiosity uh, of these Pharisees, they were very well-respected people. They were a very respect, well-respected group during this time. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, finishing off his elite resume, starting stating his last two accomplishments, showing he didn't just have an elite family name, but he had proven his work ethic as well. It was also elite. He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Showing he was both a leader in zeal and righteousness in his community. His zeal to persecute the church before he was a Christian. This was well respected in his community. And in regards to his righteousness under the law, uh, he says in confidence he was blameless. Notice he didn't say sinless, but rather he said blameless. So he was, he was well respected. He was publicly obedient. He obeyed, obeyed all the rules and laws and nobody found anything wrong with him. And so here's Paul, a man of superior religious accomplishments that came from a superior religious background, providing him with a superior religious resume. And he says to all of this, it's all a loss, all of it. It doesn't help him one bit. It does not help him on his balance sheet. He knows even with his superior religious resume, he's still in the negative column. He had everything. He had the right ethnicity, the right education, the right heritage, the best rank. He followed all the traditions. He was zealous and passionate. He obeyed all the rules and laws, and he was viewed as a religious elite, and yet he says, I count it all as a loss. It means nothing. This this was a culturally ridiculous statement. He had every privilege. He had every leg up. He did everything right from the outside. His life looked superior. But to that he said, I count it all a loss. Although, he was not, although we're, not, uh, we're not Judaizers to here today, it's very easy for us to fall into this exact same trap, thinking uh, that or chasing that the gain in our life, the gain in my life is my perception, my family, my job, my education, my politics, my grades, my social status, my friend group, being noticed for my service. We could go on and on and on about the things we seek and find as gain. And Paul says to that, no, it's counted all as a loss. And notice what he says in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And then he clarifies why it's a loss. He says, it's a loss for the sake of Christ. And he goes on on verse 8. Follow along with me. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So notice the extreme contrast here. When we look at his resume, when we look at his life accomplishments, the accomplishments, the things he's built, uh, and how he's established himself in his life, he looks at it all and says it's all lost. And in fact, in verse eight, he calls it rubbish. And rubbish is a much nicer word than what I think Paul was getting at here. You know, the King James version uh, here, I, I think, rightly says dung. 
It was a word that was referred to animal uh, or human excrements. He basically looked at his life accomplishments, uh, his life and religious resume, and he, he compared it to a nasty, stinky, dirty diaper. That's just what he did. Uh, he compared his resume to dog poo. Okay, that's what he did. Uh, his resume, so to speak, was worth the same as a dirty diaper, to be tossed into a trash can and to rot into a landfill. And what's fascinating about all of this is when we start to remember the lifestyle that this then new life gained him. He traded in his stellar religious lifestyle that likely would have been very nice, but he said it was rubbish and he threw it away and he traded it in for something better. And you know what that far better thing got him? It got him, if you remember, it got him into a prison cell facing death. And not only that, we know from 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 11 this, this new life he traded for, for also got him beaten, lashed, stoned, shipwrecked. He faced many dangers, nearly died several times. He's been cold, hungry, and he's had many sleepless night, nights. He traded in his near-perfect resume for a resume full of toil and hardship. But yet in all of this, throughout this letter, he says he can rejoice with an incredible joy in the midst of all of it. Why? because he knows he's gained Christ. In all of his challenges and troubles, Paul knows that his incredible gain, that he has gained Christ. And so to that we see, number two, Paul's gain. Paul gave up his elite religious resume and traded it in for an incredibly difficult life full of anguish and pain and troubles. And yet in his gain column, he writes, Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ. Paul has gained Jesus, which is way better. This is far better than the religious resume could ever get him. Because when he gained Christ, he also gained Jesus' resume. Brothers and sisters, when we get down into the nitty-gritty of the Christian faith, today's passage, it speaks volumes. Because listen carefully. If we live a nice moral lifestyle if we follow all the laws and rules, if we come to church, if we serve on Sunday, if we're part of a small group, uh, if we serve in our community, if we have a good job, a polite family, and a happy marriage, but if we do not have Christ, Paul says it's all rubbish. It's loss. It's all dung. But yet if we have Christ, we have the greatest treasure we could ever imagine. When we have Christ, our incredible treasure that holds us and sustains us and encourages us and makes us new and clean, when we look at everything else, it starts, they start to lose their luster. And in comparison, they're rubbish, they're dung. Look at verse 8 again. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says that knowing Christ is a surpassing worth and we think of knowing Christ, when we look to God in his holiness, in his grandeur, in his majesty, when we look at him and know Jesus as Philippians 2 showed us, when we know that, the name, that he is the name above all names, we know Yahweh who is deeply powerful and deeply personal, who knows us and cares for us, who lives with us and dwells among us. Christian, remember this today. If you know Jesus Christ, if you know the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if you know that God has made all things, created all things, and sustained all things, if you know that the God that created you knows you and he formed you in your mother's wombs, if you, womb, if you know that the God that created the mountains and the sea, if you know the God that created the butterflies and created the birds that chirp and the oceans that roar and the mountains that we climb, if you know the God that created humans, that created you and me, that loved us dearly and deeply, if you know that God, that has done all these things for us. But yet that same God watched us walk away from him. 
and watched us disobey him. (laughs) But yet in his kindness, in our filth and sin, while we were running away from God, this God that we know, he sent someone to rescue us. He sent someone to take us out of our filth. He sent someone to take us out of our craziness and disobedience and to bring us back to himself. If you are a Christian here today and you know this God, remember that God sent his son to rescue you and to rescue you from yourself and to drag you out of your sin and disobedience. (laughs) And Christian, hear this, because of this, if you know Christ Jesus, you are in God's hands and he is molding you and, and making you and forming you and shaping you to be in his image, to be like him. And this is not something that you have earned based off of your resume. No, this was a free gift that was given to you by grace, granting you access to Jesus's perfect resume to be given to God on your behalf. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, by trusting in Jesus that he died, defeated sin, and rose from the grave, we have become his beloved children. The gospel is such good news. We need this today. We were once rubbish, considered dung, but yet through the gospel, he takes us as rubbish and he turns us into rubies. Through the gospel, Jesus takes our resume of rubbish and presents uh, presents to God for us his resume. He gives God his resume of perfect royalty and obedience on our behalf. This is good news. This never gets old. And so, as we saw from Philippians 2, Jesus left his throne of royalty. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, but yet he rose from the grave and he was highly exalted so that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, so that every person would know Jesus Christ and proclaim that he is God. And through the gospel, we're then grafted in as his children. We're grafted into his royal family. Through the gospel, God takes our resume of rubbish and brings us into his resume of royalty. And so when we think of our gain and our loss column, we could write rubbish on one side and royalty on the other. And the only way we can write royalty is if Jesus Christ is in that column. And so that said... Brothers and sisters, we have an incredible gain because in our gain column, we gain Christ. So I want us to keep looking at our gain column that holds nothing, holds nothing but Jesus Christ. He's our only gain. In our last few verses, we see more of this. I want to, I want to read starting in the middle of verse 8 and then uh, continue on through verse 11. And as, uh, as we see why Jesus is such an incredible gain, look in the middle of verse 8. He says, for his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We see Paul say again, In contrast to these Judaizers, that he does not have a righteousness of his own. Uh, It's nothing that he's done, but only through faith in Christ. Paul's righteousness is not found in his personal resume, in his religious resume. No, it's found through faith in Jesus' resume alone. And then notice what he says in verse 9. There's so much gospel language here. If you're not a Christian here today, I hope and that you'll hear the gain of Christ. In verse 8, Paul says that I may gain Christ. And in verse 9, he says, and be found in him. 
And then he goes on to talk about how he's made right, and it's not by his resume. It's only through Jesus' resume. But think about what this means, that when we gain Christ and we're found in him. And then he, he, he ties all of this to righteousness. And so follow the progression here. We put our faith in Christ, we're found in him, and we're gaining his righteousness. This is what this means. In the gospel, we put faith in Christ and our sins are forgiven. Uh, you know, that's that's commonly talked about concept in Christianity, uh, but then it often stops there. But yet the good news of the gospel, it continues. Our sins are forgiven. Our rubbish is cleaned up, so to speak. Uh, and this phrase this week, it's been so fruitful for me. It, Paul says, we're found in him. This is an incredible statement. Just let that sink in. When we think about the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ and how they're, they're so interconnected and, and, and interwoven in their relationship, just think about this. When God comes to Jesus, which is all the time, eternal, it's forever, into eternity, he's sitting beside God the Father next to him. And when God looks at Jesus, do you know what he finds? He'll look and find those who trust in Jesus, those who have gained Christ. He won't see our sin because we're found in Jesus. He won't see our failures because we're found in Jesus. He won't see how messed up we are because we're found in Jesus. And so get this, in the gospel, we're not just cleaned up. Where our sins are not only forgiven, but we're also found in Christ. We're then given, we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. And so think of this rubbish and royal language. Our sins are forgiven. We're cleaned up of our rubbish and sin. Our mess is cleaned up. Our sins are forgiven, but we're not just cleaned up and forgiven. We're then found in Christ. We're found in his royalty. What good news. This is an astounding privilege that we hold as Christ followers. And in essence, Jesus takes his royal robe and he puts it on us so that we can be found in him. Our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is received, which not only cleans us up, but it provides incredible intimacy with God. This is an incredible gain of the gospel. And then if you remember from verse 10, he continues on with the greatness of knowing Jesus. He says that, that he may know him in the power of his resurrection. In the gospel, our sins are forgiven, uh, we're found in Christ, we're clothed in his righteousness, and then we're infused with the power of the resurrection. Romans 8.11 shows us that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of us to fight sin and walk in holiness, to walk in obedience, which is powerful and encouraging, and it fills us with great hope. We have, brothers and sisters, we have an incredible treasure that when we know Christ, we gain Christ. When we get this concept, when we receive Christ's righteousness, that as Christians, when God comes looking for us, he can find us in Jesus because we're found with Jesus. This is our incredible gain. And when we see our incredible gain, we see everything else as rubbish, as dung, as waste, as meaningless. And do you know what happens when we get this? We start to do really crazy things for the Lord. We start to take risks and make sacrifices. We start to give and serve in ways that don't make sense. We, can start, uh, we start to say things like what Paul says in the middle of verse 10, that, that he says, uh, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He's looking at, Paul is looking at his impending death. He's seeing his martyrdom as a privilege. When we gain Christ, we can walk into suffering and step into hardship with incredible confidence, beaming with joy because we have Christ. When we understand the gain of Christ, ultimately realizing that our life is not about us, that everything in our life is considered a loss apart from Jesus Christ. 
when we start to get this, our hearts start to be unlocked for radical generosity because our gain is not in our bank account. Our gain is in Christ. Our time, our talents, and our treasures begin to be seen as tools used for the Lord, not for our gain. No, but rather they're for Christ's gain. All of a sudden, we realize that our job and our house and our car and all of our stuff and our comforts, we realize there is no gain in these things, but rather they're all a loss. And then you know what else may happen? When we see and we know we have the incredible game of Christ, we can see moving to a place that the world considers dangerous, where, you're, where we're far from friends and family, where we have no luxuries, and all of a sudden, this doesn't seem crazy. Why? Because you have gained Christ. We have gained Christ. We're found in Christ, and we know Christ. And we know that our life can be used for the glory of Christ. When we get this, our lives, they will not be wasted. Our lives will be used for God's incredible glory. When we remember the gain of Christ, everything else is seen as rubbish, and we're unlocked for incredible sacrifices and service and risk, and we can do it all with an incredible joy. And we can run towards the finish line of the Christian life saying, as Paul says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, knowing that when we are found in Christ, we will see Jesus in eternity, seeing his full gain. Which leads us to our main idea today. And it's that joy is found is knowing that Jesus is our only gain. If we want our life to count, we want our life to be used by God. Paul has made it clear that in order for that to happen, we need to know and remember that Jesus is our only gain and everything else is considered rubbish. So that said, I want to close with this. You know, about seven years ago, we were living in Central Asia. Uh, and while we were there, I, I met a guy uh, that we, 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 our family met a guy that had a very difficult dilemma in front of him. His dilemma uh, it put this gains and loss column into a real pretty extreme situation for him. He was a Christian, uh, but his parents uh, were not. The rest of his family uh, were not Christians. And it just so happened that his parents, they were very, very wealthy. And his mother, she got very sick. Uh, she was in the hospital. And when she was, kind of, she was on her deathbed there, uh, she looked at her son, the guy, the guy that I met, and she told him, son, I have an inheritance set aside for you. But here's the thing. The only way that you can receive your inheritance is if you denounce your faith in Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ. And she proceeds to tell him that his inheritance was for $1.4 billion. Billion with a B. He was forced to choose between Jesus Christ or his earthly inheritance of $1.4 billion. And he looked right at his mother and told her with ease, I cannot and will not turn away from Jesus because Jesus is and still is his greatest treasure. And the only way anyone can make that decision with such ease is to understand what's truly in the gains column of, 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 and what's in the loss column. He knew that his gain of Christ was the far better option. So let me ask you, would that be an easy decision for you to make? If not, uh, you may not know the incredible gain of Christ. Do you know of the incredible, incredible gain of Christ? If not, I pray that you would. But that said, you know what the Lord has put on my heart for today as I say that? You know, for many of us here today, we may say, yes, that would be an easy decision. Or maybe it would be a hard decision, but we would make the right decision that we would not reject Jesus, 
But you know what is often harder than a major life-altering, huge, life-changing decision uh, that I believe the Lord wants to remind us of today? It's the day in and day out steady faithfulness of following the Lord, believing that Christ is our only gain, even in the ordinary and even in the mundane life. Believing that Christ is our only gain as we go to a job that we don't love, as we study for a test that we're not excited about, as we clean up spilled milk over and over and over again. New City Church, I believe that God has called us to, to, big, crazy, to do big, crazy things for the Lord, like going to the lost and the unreached around the world, going to hard and difficult places with joy, giving generously and sacrificially, and to wholeheartedly give up our entire life to be used by God. But what I believe it looks like for many of us right now, uh, as we believe that Christ is our only gain, the picture that the Lord has kind of put on my heart for our church is the picture of the steady faithfulness of a farmer. To day in and day out, till the soil, to sow the seed and to water the seed, to read and meditate and delight on God's word, to pray for God to save those around you, to love and serve those close to you and to sow seeds of the gospel, believing that at every step, every seed we sow, every ounce of water we throw to, to, to water the ground, of a seemingly mundane, ordinary life that's not glamorous, believing that at every step of the way that Christ is our only gain and everything else is rubbish. You see, church, let's pray. God, we love you. Father, we, we know that Jesus Christ is our only gain. Father, I pray that we would remember that. Father, I pray that we would believe that. And Father, I pray that our life would reflect that. Father, you are, uh, you're good to us. We need you and we ask this all in Jesus' name.